Freedom to Write Committee, and I have the sad duty of conveying the apologies of Charlene Hunter-Galt, who was to have been our host tonight, but who was unfortunately for us just called to the Middle East on assignment a few days ago. But she sent us a message of support from Jerusalem today, which I would like to read to you. And she wrote, I was so looking forward to joining you tonight to host your program, The Silenced Voices of Burma, but recent developments in the Middle East imposed on my schedule. I am faxing you from Jerusalem to express my deepest admiration for and appreciation of the writers who are on hand and those of you who have come to hear this moving literature from and about a land that is being terribly tortured. As a correspondent of the McNeil Lehrer News Hour and the anchor of the new human rights television series, Rights and Wrongs, I have been following developments in Burma closely. Recently, our program aired a statement from a young woman, a student activist who reported on the rapes of her schoolmates by security personnel. She said movingly that if she were still in her native land, she would likely be in prison. I wanted to be with you tonight to demonstrate how strongly, I, how strongly I believe in the power of voices raised in defense of freedom and democracy, and to say to those who would suppress those voices that they will not be silenced so long as organizations like Penn exist. My best to you in this endeavor, Charlene Hunter-Galt. And now I am delighted to introduce to you Richard Bernstein, who has stepped in to fill her place. We are very fortunate to have him. Richard Bernstein is, as I'm sure you know, a reporter at the New York Times who specializes in coverage of the world of ideas and culture. He got his BA in history at the University of Connecticut in 1966 and worked on a PhD in history and East Asian languages at Harvard from 66 until 1970. He studied in France for a year and then, while working on his PhD research in Taiwan, he began his career in journalism as a part-time correspondent for the Washington Post. He joined Time Magazine as a staff writer in 1973, writing on Asia, and was based in Hong Kong, covering China and Southeast Asia from 1976 till 1979. In 1980, he opened Time's first bureau in China itself since 1948. He stayed for three years and then went to the New York Times, covered the United Nations for a year, was the Paris bureau chief, and then, on his return to the U.S. at the end of 1987, became the national cultural correspondent. Mr. Bernstein has also reported for the Times from Australia, Israel, Lebanon, Syria, Libya, South Africa, Mozambique, and other countries. He has written two books, From the Center of the Earth, The Search for the Truth About China, and Fragile Glory, A Portrait of France and the French. With great pleasure, then, Richard Bernstein. Hi, good evening. Um, living in this country, I, I think that we probably don't appreciate the kind of courage that it takes to express yourself or to be a writer uh, in a country that, uh, where uh, simple freedom of expression is, is a rarity and where uh, people uh, who express themselves contrary to the wishes of those in power face the kind of organized uh, might uh, of a state. Uh, in total isolation from uh, the support of others, They're, they have no uh, often have no lawyers. Uh, there's no uh, crusading press that can call attention to their plight, uh, but they do have uh, 
at least uh, people in other countries, uh, who can try to call attention to the sacrifice that they have made uh, because of their courage in insisting on having their voice. And we're here tonight to uh, hear uh, what I'm sure will be a series of moving readings from a number of writers in Burma who have taken tremendous risks in order to express their true feelings about what they see around them and in their country today. Uh, Penn, the association with centers all over the world, has, since its founding in London in 1921, been a prominent voice for freedom of expression. In its time, it has defended such luminaries as Arthur Kessler, Wolo Soyinka, and Václav Havel, <clears throat> among hundreds of other writers, all of whom were forced to pay a heavy price for attempting to speak their minds freely. American Penn has been especially hardworking in this regard, and through its Freedom to Write Committee, mounts letter-writing campaigns, sends hundreds of cables a year, protests, book bannings in schools and colleges in the United States. In short, it takes action wherever the written word is under threat. And Burma is certainly one of those places. Ever since the crushing of Burma's democracy movement in 1988 and the imposition of martial rule under the State Law and Order Council, otherwise known as SLORC, Penn has been monitoring how the written word has been faring, and it, it has not been faring very well. A full account of the degree of repression and censorship that exists in Burma today can be found in Penn's new report, which is published today. It's called Inked Over, Ripped Out, Burmese Storytellers and the Censors, and is available now in this auditorium. Before we move to our readings, though, I'd like to introduce you to the, to the report's author, Anna Alot, an expert in Burmese language and literature from the School of Oriental and African Studies in London, who's flown especially to New York for this occasion. Good evening, everybody. It's rather miraculous that I'm here and holding this little baby of mine. <laughs> this evening, there are going to be many voices speaking for Burma, a country about which there are only rare reports in the news these days. Now, my task and my privilege has been to give a voice to a handful of contemporary Burmese writers to enable them to speak to you directly through their writings translated into English. And I've also attempted in my report to describe the conditions under which they have to write today. Before I go any further, I'd like to say that it's only due to a series of chance meetings between Maureen Antwin and Siobhan Dowd of Penn American Center, followed by the support and encouragement of Penn and Siobhan, that I undertook to prepare the report. So on behalf of Burmese writers, I thank the Penn American Center and its sponsors. Now, first, I put my three words, who, who, what, and how. Who am I? Well, you may well be wondering how I come uh, to be in a position to undertake such a task. I was not born in Burma. I knew nothing of the country till I had graduated, which was actually in, in Russian and Slavonic languages. 
And it was totally, again, chance, or as my many Burmese friends, karma, or my gun, which took me uh, from, after my Russian, to postgraduate studies at London University to the School of Orient and African Studies. Uh, chance again diverted me from Chinese to Burmese section, where I became an extra hand, or head, on a massive Burmese-English dictionary project, which had been started by the British way back in 1924. To cut a long story short, I began as a lexicographer, moved on to teach the language, and then moved on to become a student of and then a teacher of Burmese literature, more interested in modern prose and poetry than in the classical verse. And our most, most famous student at School of Orient and African Studies, whose work for a PhD in Burmese literature I was supervising, is Do Aung San Suu Kyi, or Sue, as we <laughs> like to call her. So, another strange coincidence. Forty years ago, almost to the month, I first landed in Burma off a Bibi Line boat, not a plane. I saw the Shwedagon Pagoda as we floated up the river. Many subsequent visits, especially in the 70s and the 80s, and my last visit was, in fact, in January of this year. So I've always felt very privileged when going to Burma to be rather an insider than a tourist. Um, I don't think I would like the country so much if I were a tourist. Now, what is the report? Very briefly, it's in two parts. First sets the scene, the political background, and an explanation of how censorship in Burma works and what it means, and how it has been working for the last 30 years. It's not something which started after 88. And second, in the report, there are nine stories by seven different authors written in the last five years. And the main thing to bear in mind about censorship in Burma is that it is totally arbitrary, petty, and frequently vindictive. There are no explicit or published guidelines, no list of prohibited topics, but writers know they cannot write anything openly critical of the gov present government. And if they do, they risk arrest. In fact, I'm very sad to have to say that in August, this August, a well-known medical writer, Dr. Aung Sin, an LD, NLD member, elected member, has been arrested and charged, is in prison, and another woman writer, Mathida, has been arrested and is awaiting trial this month. Now, how, so how do the short stories, which uh, I have selected, reach the Burmese reading public? Um, you have to again remember that radio, TV, and all newspapers are government-owned and controlled. Short stories, on the other hand, appear in privately owned magazines which are subject to market forces and to very strict censorship. So I just got one here. This, this is the kind of magazine. There are well over 20 different titles, and this means that about 100 or more short stories, new ones, appear every month. The paper is terrible. Um, the cover is probably misleading. They are not just, uh, um, how would I say, girly magazines or love stories. They've actually got a lot of serious material. They have news, they have short stories, they have poems, they have cartoons, and, uh, and, and so on. Several different kinds of things in. 
The paper is terrible and the, the actual magazine is now fairly expensive for the majority of inhabitants. But the worst thing is that they are censored after printing. Now, censoring is either silver inking. Uh, I'll put this, this particular magazine, which is now banned, has plentiful examples, both of the silver inking and of the ripped out pages. If anybody's interested, I'll, I'll put it down there. You can just have a look, just to see. That's the way the censor does it. And of course, the, the owner of the magazine then bears the loss of the time taken to tear the pages out of every number of the magazine, to go through and paint out with silver paint all the things that has been decreed have to be censored in that particular number. Uh, during my visits to the country in, in the 70s and 80s, I was made fully aware of the total absence of freedom of expression, but I didn't choose to write about it in any outspoken fashion, as I thought I could actually be more useful um, to my friends and give more encouragement by continuing personal visits and bringing them gifts of books which cannot be freely imported. Burma is absolutely starved of books from the West. By strange coincidence, during those years, too, I was actually visiting friends and relations in another socialist country, where writers found themselves in a similar situation of fear and uncertainty. And this was Czechoslovakia, because my mother is Czech. To them, too, I used to take precious books and papers, which their government prevented them from acquiring, so you can imagine my joy at the Velvet Revolution in November 89, which set Czechoslovakia free. And of course, my hope is always that Burma will be similarly freed. And my own special happiness, of course, was that the imprisoned writer Václav Havel, who had become president, was one of the most influential nominees of Do Aung San Suu Kyi for the Nobel Prize. So my decision to write this report marks a point for me of no return, or to make a bad pun, possibly no return to Burma, because as in it I make clear my total disapproval of and contempt for the present system of censorship in Burma. And as I say, as I try to say to every slop government official I meet, how are you going to build a genuine democracy as you claim you are trying to? if you allow no opportunity for free and public criticism. So I quite expect to be refused a visa to visit the country in future. Who knows how long it will be till I shall be a welcome visitor there again. Probably many of you are here because you know something about Burma. Um, you know that it was a British colony, uh, that it achieved independence in 1948, uh, that for many, many years, including most of the years or all of the years that I myself was in Asia, seven of them, uh, there was something called the Burmese Road to Socialism, uh, which basically, for, uh, for all practical purposes for us outside the country, meant that we, it was very difficult to get a visa to go there and almost impossible to get a visa to go there as a journalist. So that Burma was probably the least, well, actually I'm <laughs> reconsidering that possibility. I was going to say that the, it was the least reported on country uh, in Southeast Asia, but uh, for some of that time, uh, certainly Cambodia and Vietnam rivaled it for 
the small amount of information that was getting out from reporters who were actually able to visit the country. In 1988, there was a brief kind of uh, Rangoon Spring. Uh, there were student demonstrations, uh, a little bit like, I think, the demonstrations that took place in China the year after, the famous Tiananmen demonstrations in 1989. Uh, the difference being that while the Burmese demonstrations had to be covered for by reporters stationed in Bangkok by calling up embassies and whatever contacts they could make inside Burma, uh, at least in the Chinese case, uh, the press, including, I'm happy to say myself, were there to record both on film and in words uh, what actually took place. Uh, in, uh, it was during, in the aftermath of the demonstrations uh, and a, a brutal crackdown in which uh, many people uh, were imprisoned, uh, hundreds of people certainly, perhaps more. A large number of students uh, died under somewhat mysterious circumstances, although the government uh, responding to demands for an investigation did eventually admit that 41 students had suffocated to death in a police van after they had been arrested in those demonstrations. It was also at that time that Do Aung San Suu Kyi, the daughter of Aung San, the leader of the post-war independence movement, uh, who was assassinated in 1947, uh, it was at that time that his daughter uh, first came to our notice uh, addressing a student rally, uh, or a mass rally, not just a student rally, at the uh, famous Shui Dagon Pagoda. That was on August 26th. Uh, on September 18th, uh, the army seized, the, seized power from the government. Uh, General So Maung became chairman of a new of governing body, the aforementioned SLORC. The SLORC promised elections, which were held, but when Do Aung San Suu Kyi, who was already under house arrest, won those elections, the government refused to abide by the results, and uh, Do Aung San Suu Kyi remains under arrest, uh, as do many, many other people uh, in the National League for Democracy, the principal party in opposition to, the mil to military rule. Many re writers have been imprisoned, including some of those whose works uh, we will hear uh, tonight, hear from tonight. Um, let me introduce, uh, each reader, I should say, will appear on stage twice, and I will introduce you to them just before their first appearance, and after that they will come uh, in the order that I think they've already determined among themselves. Let me first introduce to you an especially honored guest, uh, Alexander Aris, the son of Doang San Suu Kyi, uh, who will read a statement by his mother. The words I shall read to you are taken from those spoken in Burmese by my mother, Do Aung San Suu Kyi, at her sixth press conference in 1989. This was just a few weeks before she was placed under, under the detention, which she still endures more than four years later. In her statement, she, ex she explained in brief the policies of her party on human rights, particularly the right to publish. She also spoke of the fundamental need for opening a dialogue with the authorities in the search for a political solution to Burma's problems. 
My mother herself prepared the English translation, which I shall now read for the first time. And although this was actually never intended for publication or thought of um, for such, I feel that um, it gives a sense of the freshness and uh, the immediacy of living under conditions where um, censorship is uh, a way of life. Um, uh, I'll begin now. It is a very sad state of affairs that we do not even have security of life, the most fundamental of rights. It is because we want these basic human rights that we are in involved in the movement for democracy. That is why we have to res resist unjust orders and the wrongful use of power. If we do not resist them, we shall gradually lose even those few rights which we are permitted to enjoy. In regard to the need for, for permission to print and publish, since November 1988, we have been asking to be allowed to bring out a newspaper. Permission was not given. We brought out and distributed pamphlets in accordance with regulations, and we re res resist restricted these to members of our party. Finally, we were told we had to ask for permission to, pr to print and publish these. So this month, some of us went to the Press Scrutiny Board to ask for permission to bring out a booklet of extracts from my speeches. But there was no response. There was no answer of any kind. In the meantime, a printer who had been producing our pamphlets was forced to shut down, and there have been various other forms of intimidation. The Slork has said that they were about to allow freedom of publication but were deterred by our actions. If they were indeed about to do so, how is it that just a couple of weeks ago, an edict was issued abrogating the rights to which we were entitled under the Printers and Publications Act of 1962? There is a dichotomy between words and deeds. Now they say one thing, now another, so we have no idea what to believe. If there is a genuine desire to resolve existing problems between the forces of democracy and the slork. Please open a dialogue. Call us for a dialogue. We would not consider it beneath our dignity at all to go for talks as soon as we are summoned. That is the, politi that is the political way, and we believe only in the political way. What was indicated by the events of 19th July, 1947, the assassination of Huang Sang and his colleagues remembered every year as Martyr's Day. 7th July, 1962, the destruction of the Students' Union of Rangoon University, and 8th August, 1988, the massacre of demonstrators calling for democracy. These events show that we have suffered because of attempts to solve political problems by force of arms. We do not wish for a repeat of such events. We only wish for political solutions. That is why we shall carry out our campaign of civil disobedience in, in accord with the need for a political solution. We have asked the people to resist as a matter of duty all orders and authoritarian measures contrary to the will of the majority. Everybody has the duty to protect fundamental human rights. Thank you.
my pleasure to introduce uh, the American author Marianne Wiggins, known to all of you, I'm sure. Marianne Wiggins is the author of the novel John Dollar, Herself in Love, Separate Checks, and the collection of short stories, They'll Miss Us When We Are Gone. The silencing of philosophers, thinkers, and writers has a long history. Um, for those of us in the West, it arcs <clears throat> from Socrates to the beginning of this century with the suppression of a great Irish masterpiece by an English court. Sometimes the silencing and the repression comes from the secular ilk, the state, and other times from those who wear the mantle of religion, it is no less evil from the state or from religious fanatics. And very often at these gatherings, um, of which now I have attended too many in my lifetime, um, we don't ask the essential question, which is, what is the fear of the thinker in society? Um, writing, especially the writing of fiction, is by its very nature the antithesis of an exhortation toward violence. It is, because of the way that reading occurs, a very profoundly intimate act. The writer does not have the final word because the reading occurs within the reader, and therefore it is an act of intense compassion, and it is that compassion that the tyrant fears. Tonight I'm going to read with what I hope is the deepest compassion. As I said, I hope that within all our lifetimes, we can gather, some of us as writers, but all of us as readers, not because we must keep alive the silenced, but to rejoice together and set ringing the clarion of our humanity. I'm going to read a story called The Children Who Play in the, Black, in the Back Alleyways by Sun Sun Nue. There's an introduction. <clears throat> this story was written early in 1989 for the magazine Eight Met Fu. It was not passed by the press security board, however, and was torn out after printing. The author, who came to prominence in the mid-1970s, was arrested on the same day as Dor Aung San Suu Kyi and spent 10 months in prison. Since her release, her work has not been allowed into print, and she maintains her family. Her husband died in 1992 by trading. During the pro-democracy demonstrations in 1988, there was one particular death among the many that had a special impact on the academic community in Rangoon. The son of a teacher at the university was sitting drinking a cup of coffee in a tea shop on the campus when he was fatally shot in front of his friends by a stray bullet from a passing military vehicle. The story alludes to this and the children's mention of the color of the young man's shirt implies that the shirt was stained red with blood. At the time the story was written, an evening curfew was enforced from 9.30 p.m. The curfew was finally lifted completely only in November 1992. The story seems to suggest that whatever efforts the SLORC makes to ingratiate itself with the people by building public parks and children's playgrounds, it will not succeed in wiping out the memory of the unnecessary bloodshed and the army's cruelty. 
Indeed, the clearing away of small houses and familiar corner shops and cafes only leaves a greater feeling of resentment. The final lines of this story are surely heavily ironical. The children who play in the back alleyways. On evenings when the electricity goes off in our neighborhood, the streets are usually full of people. Our homes are cramped, and the lack of light inside encourages us to seek out the early evening breeze on the street where there is more space and light. When power cuts occur on moonlit nights, nervous types like myself breathe a little easier. The sound of the children's laughter seems louder and more vivacious, and the teenagers strum softly at their guitars, playing not only the latest hits, but also the old familiar tunes that tend to linger sweetly in the air, lifting the heart, yet bringing sad thoughts. The noise of the young children running here and there, chanting in shrill voices, often disturbs me, though, and I have to shout angrily at them to drive them away. But they just move on somewhere else and carry on their laughing and playing, noisily arguing, never tiring of devising endless games. I guess I'm glad the scamps can play so happily, yet at the same time, I get a little anxious. The scrub and long grass where they run around playing hide-and-seek is full of vipers and scorpions, and the spot just behind our row of little houses is a favorite with the mongooses. The children of our neighborhood are quite familiar with mongooses, but all the same, it could be nasty if they stepped on one in the dark. Even though mongooses don't usually attack people, they will react violently to being touched, biting back if they are hurt. They say mongoose bites are hard to heal. Only last year, a child who had been bitten by one died before reaching the hospital. And children have such short memories, don't they? They are heedless and quickly forget things that have happened to them. They haven't learned to feel fear. Almost all the kids from our neighborhoods, including my two, are little devils. They decide for themselves that their homework needn't be done properly, and they just fool around, getting up to whatever mischief beckons. We we parents, at our wits' ends, have given up trying to do anything about it. Tonight, I see the kids playing recklessly. They could easily come to harm. The dim, yellow streetlights and the faint twilight make the main roads treacherous, with its passing cyclists and sidecars plying for hire. And in the back alleys and on the patches of waste ground, there could be scorpions and snakes. But wait a minute. Suddenly I remember, isn't there somewhere just up the road where they could play to their heart's content? Isn't there a seesaw, some swings, green grass, and beds of colorful flowers just about to bloom, and benches with fresh paint just about to dry by now? They could play on the swings, singing the old nursery rhyme. Seesaw, sit on the plank, one foot up, one foot down, show me the way to Rangoon Town. Here they could shout, let off steam, and make as much noise as they liked. Leaving the shade of an almond tree, I emerge into the dappled moonlight onto the tarmac road and look around in search of the children. Hi, Kate, Cose. Hi, Johnny, I call out. The people nearby look to see why I'm raising my voice, but I take no notice. Boys, come back. Bring your friends, all of you. Come over here. With a patter of feet, the children come running at top speed and gather around me, panting for breath. My youngest son, Moonface, throws his arms around my waist. What have you got for us to eat, Mommy, he asks, always looking for food, I reply. No, I called you because I won't have you playing in the back streets in the dark. Come on, all of you, we'll go to the park at the end of the road. There's so much more space up there. Come on, I'll take you. Oh, but Mommy, he protests, his little arms round my waist loosen. I'm afraid to go. The tremulous words come from the little one in the group. I'm not afraid, 
But I see something, says one of the older boys, Kose. What are you saying? Afraid of what? Oh, Mommy, you know, it's, it's Ko-chan-e. He was a very good friend of ours. Yes, Auntie, says another. He always helped us when we were flying our kites. When that big boy with, was with us, no one dared to try to beat us. Our group was the champion at kite flying in our neighborhood. Chan-e used to fly kites and do his schoolwork, too. And if he ever went into a tea shop, it was only for just a moment. An auntie, he died in a moment, too. I can just see him now. As their voices clamor one after another, I, too, imagine that I can see the boy. His friends are carrying the lifeless body out of the tea shop. But Chan-e is no more, and the tea shop has gone, too. And all along, the, and along with the tea shop and nearby Arakan noodle shit stalls and the beetle and cigarette sellers have vanished. They said the itinerant sellers with their stalls scattered in a makeshift manner here and there were spoiling the neighborhood's tidy aspect, and so they made them clear out. And all that remains in this area of leveled ground, which they've turned into a children's playground, an expanse of green grass with seesaws and swings and neat beds of colorful flowers. It's the best place for you to play. What's wrong with it? Come on, let's go. I'm afraid to go. It's the same little boy as before. What are you afraid of, silly? I scold. I'm not afraid, but I can see him there. It's the older boy again. What do you mean, see him? You mean you're imagining his ghost? The children are quiet. Taking advantage of their silence, I begin to lecture them in true adult fashion. Have they ever seen a ghost? I, for one, never have. There aren't any ghosts. Ghosts simply don't exist. Oh, but, Auntie, that's only because when people die, the family makes lots of offerings to the monks so that the dead person doesn't end up as a ghost. Kochan A's family was too poor. Stop that. Don't talk nonsense. There absolutely no, are no ghosts. If you don't believe me, just go and play there every evening. Come on now. I'll take you there. No way. That's enough now. You're just being stubborn. In this age of modern science, there's no need to be afraid of ghosts. But, Auntie, scientific ghosts are more frightening. We've seen them in video movies. All you kids ever do is watch those videos. I don't feel like playing anymore, one of the children says. I can see Ko-chan A right now with his bright red shirt but he was wearing a white shirt. No, it was red. Stop arguing, it's already past nine. The children scamper off to their homes and I walk home too, my heart heavy. I can't help wondering what more can be done to persuade those children to use that playground. I wish I wasn't a born worrier. Somehow I must get them to pull all these notions out of their heads. And somehow I know it will fall to me alone to do it. For, as a writer and mother... I guess I'm the only one around here that can exercise those particular ghosts. As we hear these stories, we might contemplate Marianne Wiggins' question why do the holders of powers, why are they so terrified of the thinkers? Our next reader is Jeffrey Eugenides, whose first novel, The Virgin Suicides, has been published to great acclaim by Farrar Strauss.
Win Pei is generally agreed to be one of Burma's most popular storytellers, whether it be as a film director or maker of video movies or a short story writer. Now in his mid-fifties, he is, by his own admission, something of a jack-of-all-trades. He has at various times been a journalist, cartoonist, gem dealer, musician, arts administrator, film director, painter, and writer. He grew up in an artistic family and learned Burmese classical music before he began primary school. He attended Mandalay University, studying first natural sciences, then philosophy, political science, and philosophy. But he left without a degree because, as he said in an interview, he was painting, making music, and involved in politics. His first job was as a cartoonist on a left-wing daily newspaper. When the paper was nationalized, he went to work in the jade mines owned by his father-in-law. At the age of 31, he was appointed to the post of principal of the State School of Fine Arts, Music, and Dancing in Mandalay under the Ministry of Culture, which gave him some six years of experience as a government servant under the Burmese way to socialism. He left this post to take up filmmaking, an activity that gave more scope to his creative imagination and his many talents. Uwen Pei now divides his time between film direction, painting, and writing short stories, turning to the latter during breaks in his filming schedules. He first started writing short stories in the late 1980s, when shortages of film stock left him with time on his hands. More recently, he has returned to films, but concentrates on video films, for which it is much easier and cheaper to obtain the necessary equipment in Burma. Cinema's loss has been the gain of the literary world. Uwen Pei's varied career has furnished him with a richness of experience that gives power and authenticity to his short stories, at the same time, his artist's eye enables him to paint a scene vividly in just a few lines. Many of his stories are amusing sketches of mostly male Burmese life, told in simple language, rich in dialogue, and comic situations. The tales are often set in the tea shops that are the venue for what remains of political debate in Burma. Since 1991, the tea shop owners have been told that they will be held personally responsible for anyone found discussing anti-government politics on their premises. And the omnipresent informers have practically stifled discussions. Though he now lives in Rangoon with his wife and five children, he still writes mainly about Mandalay and the surrounding towns and villages of Upper Burma. In The Day the Weather Broke, a short story set against a menacing background of turmoil in the elements, a young boy tries to save a wild bird from the storm. The bird is killed by the house cat, and the gentle young boy is driven by his anger at this, this senseless killing into a fury of hate for the cat, which he then tries to kill in turn. The end, as is usual for a Uwinpei, is unexpected. Why then did this story strike such a chord with many Burmese readers? Why was it selected as the best story of the month out of a total of 120 stories in April 1990 by one of Burma's leading critics? It seems possible to take the sequence of events as a metaphor for the happenings of 1988. The ordinary, normally gentle people of Burma tried to rescue and protect the frail bird of democracy that was brought to them in the storm. The heartless killing of the bird by the cat calls up images of the killings all over the country by the army, which in their turn provoked violent and bloody reactions by ordinarily peaceful citizens. And perhaps the ultimate fate of the cat represents the secret wish of many of the readers. The day the weather broke. There was no particular reason why young Po Nyo had climbed up onto the roof of his house, 
It was far too early in the day for kite flying. It was about one o'clock and still very hot up there. By four or so, the conditions would be perfect. It would be cooler and there would be a breeze. As he stepped out onto the roof, a curious foreboding came over Ponyo. The southern half of Mandalay Town was in bright sunshine, while the northern half, including his family's house, was in the shadow of a massive black cloud. The sky was dark and threatening, and there was not a breath of wind. Even the topmost leaves of the trees in the compound of the mosque next door, which grew as high as the roof, were still. The black cloud was no ordinary one. Beneath it all was still, but in the sky above, the wind blew fiercely, as if there were a storm in the heavens. For a short while, the edges of the dark cloud turned red, and then whatever it was that had raised such turbulence in the sky seemed to descend to earth. The temperature dropped, there was a gust of wind, and the southern part of Mandalay passed from light into darkness. The wind grew stronger. The weather was about to break. Ponyo waited fearfully to see what would happen. Birds were darting this way and that among the storm clouds, panicked by the sudden change. High in the sky, where normally only kites and kestrels were at home, shrikes and bulbuls were flashing by. Ponyo felt afraid. His hair was flapping in the violent wind. He had just decided that he should get off the roof when a small blue bird fell at his feet, exhausted from fleeing the storm. Without stopping to think, Ponyo ran to pick it up. It was a bird from the jungle, such as he had never seen before, a pretty thing, half dead with fright. But in his hands, the bird seemed even more frightened, opening its beak and staring in terror. Ponyo took it across to the corrugated iron shelter by the stairwell, and scooping some water out of the pot that was kept there, he tried to coax the bird to drink. Very gently, he blew warm air on it by way of reassurance, but still it would not drink. Ponyo realized that this was a bird rarely seen anywhere near a town. It had been blown in by the storm. If it did revive, he could not just release the bird from the roof, as it would be lost and bewildered among the unfamiliar houses and buildings. He would have to make a special trip into the countryside to set it free. In the meantime, he would keep it safe, perhaps under a wire food cover. At once it lost its fear, it would surely take food and water. Then he could put it in a wicker cage and take it on his bicycle to somewhere distant, like the foot of Yangon Hill, and how happy the bird would be to be released out there. By now the rain was lashing down furiously. Ponyo descended the steep staircase cautiously, holding the little bird as gently as he could. Today there was no one at home. Downstairs he picked up the food cover from the table and moved toward the bed, planning to make a place for the bird there. But just as he was about to put it under the cover, it freed itself from his hands and flew upward. In its panic, it hit against the walls of the room, now this side, now that, not daring to alight anywhere. At first, Pionyo tried to recapture the bird, but the more he chased it, the more panic-stricken it became, until he realized that he was terrifying it and causing it more suffering. So at last he stopped and stood quietly watching. The bird went on flapping around, although a little less wildly, apparently seeking escape from these strange surroundings which were so unlike its own familiar forest foliage. All at once, through the iron bars of the closed gate at the top of the staircase, Minette, the family cat, appeared. It caught sight of the fluttering bird. Ponyo shouted at it to shoo it away, but to no avail. 
Minette bounded up on top of the cupboard and made a spring for the bird as it flew past. Ponyo went after the cat, trying to hit it, but the cat paid no attention to him and continued to chase its quarry, leaping from the cupboard to the crossbeams, from ledge to windowsill. The bird, more frightened than ever, fluttered desperately. Ponyo shrieked at the cat, and in the confusion, Minette pounced on the bird, which let out a shrill cry. Ponyo lunged at the cat and kicked it with such force that it landed with a thud against the brick wall. The bird slipped out of its grasp. Ponyo quickly retrieved it and saw it was gasping for breath. The cat's claws had dug deep into its fragile body, and it was wounded on the neck where the cat had bitten it. Just as Ponyo was examining it, the little bird's neck fell, broken, in his hands. Ponyo laid the bird down on the table. Turning to look for the cat, he glimpsed it shooting under a cupboard. He grabbed the broom from the corner of the room and then remembered that, since all the doors were shut, the only way out was a small ventilator in the wall. And it was too high up for the cat to reach anyway. Even if the cat did manage to get up there, it would never survive the fall into the back alley of the mosque next door. Ponyo was determined to teach the cat a lesson. And goaded by the sight of the dead bird, he lashed out at the cat viciously, landing a blow at every other swipe as the cat dashed about the room. But after all, a cat has nine lives. Somehow it kept escaping him. Ponyo, his anger rising to a murderous fury, found he no longer merely wanted to teach the cat a lesson. Minet, leaping to escape Ponyo, scratched him on the hand and drew blood, which only made matters worse. Ponyo determined to finish the cat off with one good blow. Minette saw, that the mess, saw the message, and Ponyo's eyes spelled death. The boy cornered the cat, took aim, and was preparing to strike when the cat looked up at Ponyo with wild, glaring eyes. Realizing that the cat had no other means of escape and was going to fight back, Ponyo hesitated. In that split second, Minette sprang onto his shoulder and from there leapt ten feet up to the ventilator. Even for a cat, the leap was no mean feat. Minette must have used every ounce of remaining strength to do it. Ponyo whacked the cat out through the ventilator with his breath. It was a long drop. In the alleyway below, there were some barbed wire fencing on which the cat might well have landed. Ponyo, broom in hand, rushed down the steep stairs. When he got out into the back alley, he could see through the torrential rain that the cat was struggling to free itself from the barbed wire. Just as Ponyo approached, Minette succeeded in breaking free and streaked toward a clump of mimusup trees and out of sight. Ponyo let out a curse and banged the broom handle against the barbed wire fence post. With strength born of fear, the cat darted through the trees and jumped over the main wall of the mosque compound. What happened to the cat, Haponyo never found out. It was set upon and bitten to death on the other side of the wall by a pack of dogs from the house of Siajaw, the painter. Nor did he learn its ultimate fate. Some drunks staying over at Siajaw's quietly cooked and ate Minette and never breathed the word about it afterward.
Our next reader has come from Washington, D.C. to be with us tonight. She is the Burmese American author, Wendy Loyon. Ms. Loyon grew up in Rangoon, the daughter of the founder and publisher of the Rangoon Nation, the leading English language daily in the 1950s. During the 1960s, her father was imprisoned under the Burmese Socialist Program Party for five years. And during his imprisonment in 1967, Ms. Loyon was herself jailed briefly after she attempted to flee Burma. Since 1973, she has lived in the United States. She is the recipient of fellowships from the Carnegie Endowment and the National Endowment for the Arts, a journalist and the author of the novel, The Coffin Tree. Her second novel, Irrawaddy Tango, will be published in January. Even when times were hard, the life we left behind had run along a groove cut by tradition, familiarity, and habit. But arriving in New York, my brother and I fell out of that groove, and finding our footing was nearly as awkward as the astronauts' first steps in the atmosphere of the moon. We landed in America three months after they landed on the moon and watched the event on a giant television screen. We landed in America, is that better? I'll stand on my toes. We landed in America three months after they landed on the moon and watched the event on a giant television screen that hung above the maze of cosmetics and costume jewelry in a Fifth Avenue store. It was our first American department store, but the visit was short-lived. After several runs of the moon footage, we had wandered into the women's shoe department where we tried to beat down the price of a pair of sandals, bizarre style. The saleswoman began to treat us like morons, shouting out the fixed price red face, we abandoned the sandals and the store. Father had said we should get in touch with Morrison, a friend who lived in New York, and explain our circumstances. He would give us what help we needed. In the meantime, he would be sending us more money in Morrison's care to tide us over our first few months. But contacting this man was harder than we had imagined. The letter we wrote came back 10 days later marked moved, address unknown. We didn't have a telephone number, and when we looked through the directory, there were enough Morrisons to make us despair. After many wrong numbers, we finally heard Morrison's voice. But we couldn't be sure because it was a recording. How to make sense of the recording? Was it a joke or a trick? or a code, so we took turns redialing and hanging up with each beep. 
In those early days, it seemed as if we had been thrown into a colossal obstacle course where machinery, gadgetry, and mystery of one sort or another stood in our way at every turn. All around us, hordes of people were breezing through those same obstacles without a second thought, waiting for the right buses, running down the right entrances to the subways, dropping the right change into the right slots, not even needing to look up from their papers to get off at the right stops, pushing the right buttons on elevators, giving their orders at restaurants and cafeterias in the right voices, the right words. We had had glimpses of these marvels in the movies back home, but seeing an elevator on film is inadequate preparation for stepping into one, of, one for the first time without getting crushed by the heavy, ineluctable doors, and then recovering in time to press the right button. We kept calling the number with the recording for weeks, though prevented by an inexpressible shyness from saying a word. And when at last a real voice answered, we hung up again from <laughs> habit. But when we plucked up the nerve to call back, the miraculous happened. We had found our Morrison. It wasn't quite the exchange we'd expected. Instead of offering to pick us up immediately and take us back to his home, he invited us to dinner, and on a date that was three weeks away. The dinner invitation brought its own set of worries. What would we wear? What would we talk about? What subjects should we try to evade for fear of revealing our ignorance about things that concerned our still unsorted past, our shaky present, our even shakier future? Years later, I came across a cartoon that reminded me of our bumbling stabs at presentability. It showed a sort of simpleton in a sort of Eastern European folk costume, belled cap included, holding a tambourine and saying, and now I will sing you a song of my country. So must we have seemed when we arrived at the Morrison's Park Avenue address. Sean in his shiny suit that drooped at the shoulders, I in my lime green dress with shoes to match. A pair of bumpkins singing a song of our country. When I was growing up, Morrison had been an occasional visitor, always arriving crumpled and sweaty from the long ride in from the airport, but full of laughter and loaded with presents. Now, on his turf, he greeted us at the door with brisk handshakes, not the exuberant embraces we were used to. Five years had passed since we had seen him last. He had been a bachelor then, a ruddy-faced man in safari shirts with a startlingly loud laugh. Now, in his dark suit, he was older and paler and far from uproarious. I heard other voices in the room beyond and discovered with a sinking heart that we were not the only guests. Mrs. Morrison came forward to greet us. She held out the tips of her fingers as if expecting them to be kissed. She was very thin with broad freckled shoulders that jutted out above a strapless black dress. Her eyes were sunken and seemed to require an effort to stay open. Her cheeks were hollow. Her smile hinted at disappointment. 
she led us across several Persian carpets into the dining room. The introductions made, she promptly turned her back on us and resumed the conversation we had interrupted, which had to do with the difficulty of flying in fresh salmon from Alaska. Morrison, Morrison seemed at a loss for words. We were faces out of a past he didn't appear eager to recall. Perhaps he no longer wished to dabble in the politics of our country. Perhaps he had seen the writing on the wall when after the long summer he spent in father's rebel camp, he returned to the United States to raise funds for the cause, only to raise a shipment of used grade school texts for the children of the rebel villages. Whatever the reasons, he seemed almost as ill at ease as at his own dinner table as we were, sitting there in our chintzy clothes while the Japanese butler smirked at our hesitations over the linen and silver. Unequal to the level and pace of conversation, we remained mute, regretting the mistake of our presence there. We made our escape as soon as we could, refusing a cab with the excuse that we preferred to walk. The coats we still couldn't afford, we claimed to have left at home. No, no, we like the cold we who had grown up in tropical heat. Outside, we shivered in the autumn wind and walked with bowed heads all the 30 blocks home. The next day, we steeled ourselves to make the odious telephone call asking about the money, the money father was supposed to have sent. It fell to me, the younger, the brasher of the two, to call. The indecency of asking for money, though rightfully ours, would be mitigated, we agreed, coming from me. It was such a simple question. Had the Morrisons, by chance, received some money from father? And yet, it took some 12 hours of hesitation and argument to make that call. It took repeated rehearsals of that single line for me to collect the nerve. Over the telephone and without the appeasement of her tired smile, Mrs. Morrison's voice had the unfaltering resonance of a radio announcer. It was the voice of America. <laughs> I managed to deliver my well-rehearsed query. On the other end, there was a pause and then a deep breath. You know, my dear, she said, her voice taking on the coziness of a nanny reading a bedtime story. Mr. Morrison and I have not been involved in your part of the world for many years now. We've had no contact, financial or otherwise. We certainly know nothing about these funds from your father. Now, surely you don't think we'd be sitting on them if we had them? Now, we know it isn't easy for you and your brother here so far from home. You come from a proud family. It must be hard for you to ask for help. But I personally believe it is always better to speak openly and directly. Why not come right out and say you need money? Then maybe we could work something out. I could think of no other response than to drop the phone. I told you we shouldn't have asked, I said to Sean, blaming him for the humiliation. Stupid foreigners, Sean said, they think money is everything. We're the foreigners now, I reminded him. We're the men on the moon.
Our next reader is the 1991 winner of the National Book Award. Norman Rush is the author of Mating. His previous book, a collection of short stories called Whites, was a finalist for both the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award in 1986. His short fiction has been published in The New Yorker, The Paris Review, Grand Street, and elsewhere. Stories of his have been selected three times for Best American Short Stories. He has received fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the Academy and Institute of Arts and Letters, the National Endowment for the Arts, the New York Foundation for the Arts, and the Rockefeller Foundation. Today he is working on the final novel in his African trilogy, Karakang the Incendiary. Norman Rush. I am honored to take part in this act of protest against the cruel and violative behavior of the Slork regime in Burma. Our local chapter of Amnesty International in Rockland County has for the last few years been concerned, very much concerned with Burmese prisoners of conscience. And in our experience, Burma, and maybe Peru is a, is a runner up here, has proven to be the most unregenerate and opaque in the face of protest of any of our many violator governments. The answer to this, of course, is simply more pressure, more protest, more publicity. And I hope that this event tonight is a sign that more of that is to come. I'm going to read the Python, uh, an extract really, from the, the, the short story, The Python, by Nyi Poulet. He is currently imprisoned. He was born in about 1952, the youngest of five children of Ludu Uhla and Ludu Do Ama, two famous Burmese left-wing writers from Mandalay. Unlike his elder brothers and sisters, Nyi Poulet showed no interest in schoolwork or in writing as a boy, preferring to spend his time playing soccer and drawing. He only began to write in 1985 after his father's death and rapidly became popular for his satirical short stories, two collections of which have been published, each illustrated with his own drawings. On December 25, 1990, he was arrested upon his return to Mandalay from a trip to, Be to Pagan with a group of six friends, including writers like Dun Lu, Kya Yin Mint, and Kya Sho Win. The others were released after a week, but Nyi Poulet was charged under Section 117, 1 and 2 of the 1908 Unlawful Associations Action, action which concerns contact with illegal organizations. It is believed that he was arrested because of his family's political pedigree and his satirical writings. Until December 1991, he was held in jail in Rangoon, but was then transferred with a number of other political uh, prisoners to Thayet jail, jail in central Burma, a town that is difficult for his relatives to reach in order to visit him. He is serving a 10-year term. 
In addition to his artistic talents, Nye Poulet is a keen soccer player and has also represented the Mandalay division in cycling. He is married and has three children. In the section of his story, The Python, which I'll read, the character Wu Mo Chin, uh, the house buyer, represents a type of Chinese entrepreneur from the Shan states. Many of these had made have enriched themselves through unsavory arrangements with the Slork government, some of them involving trade in heroin. This is the Python by Ni Poulet. The front door, which was always kept closed, had been opened. Sitting in the front room, U Ta Da was gazing vacantly out onto the road. The armchair in which he was reclining had once belonged to his father. Rather than cover it in nylon or cloth, his father had upholstered it in leather so that it would endure years, endure years of use. In the days when the cover had been new, the leather had been stiff and strong-smelling. His father had sat there throughout many discussions concerning all shapes and sizes of beans and pulses with his broker friends. Here, his father had read his way through the newspapers of the day, Ludu, Bahusi, Mankit. And here, he had riffled his way through the piles of banknotes bearing the signature of the then Treasury Secretary, Mang Kong. In those days, they had lived in a big wooden house on stilts painted with creosote. When he had grown up, his father had pulled down the old house and built a new two-story brick building, and it was in this home that Uta Da had learned all he knew about chick and pigeon peas and every variety of bean. Nowadays, the armchair's leather cover had been worn as soft as velvet, and although the leather was not burnished or polished, the color shone out of its smooth surface, and the seams had all but sunk into the material. Contact with years of long ease had frayed some of the stitching, and the padding at the head of the chair was stained brown with coconut hair oil. The embroidery on the headrest was his father's own handiwork, and the stitches were so regular that one might have thought they had been sewn by machine. Uta Da sat gazing around him at the house, the compound, the furniture, all the household goods and kitchen utensils down to the thermos flask and beetle box. Everything he saw had been left to him by his parents. His thoughts then turned to his younger half-brother, Wang To, and his nephew, Mong Tan Zin. Uta Da's business had been sliding downhill for some time. Despite the fact that none of the three had any weakness for gambling or drinking or other forms of entertainment, they still had to dip into their savings from time to time, and while dipping in on the one hand, they were still trying to earn on the other little by little, like an evaporating mothball, their bundle of savings was diminishing. Nowadays they had to work just hard, hard just to repay the money that they had borrowed. Business was not booming. He bought when the price was high, and then all went awry and the price of stockpiled beans didn't rise as it should have, so that when he sold his beans, he failed to make a profit. In fact, business was a disaster. Although he could bear 
one bad year or even two, after three or four bad years in a row, he was in deep trouble. Just as a boat cast adrift must be chased by another boat, so the sums of money that had drained away had to be chased by more money. And once he discovered he was no longer able to send good money after bad, what was to be done? He and his wife had often discussed this very question. The first person to come up with advice had been Kong Yeong, one of their relatives, who was a property broker. Uncle, he said, I could easily get you 800,000 kyats for this place of yours. When Utado had heard this, he had thrown into a rage and come close to beating him. Get out, get out, he had spotted his face bright red with fury. But it had been a little misunderstanding between age and youth. Kong Yeong had not taken offense and had apologized to his uncle, saying that he had no idea that he was so attached to this place. Soon after, he was to be found coming and going in his regular manner, and he never missed coming with gifts for his elders on festival days. Outside in the road, the bicycles streamed past. Utah Daw's house was close to the petrol pump used by the buses plying the routes all around town, so that buses from all lines rumbled by outside. This was the business quarter of Mandalay, full of brokers and merchants and full of warehouses, bean processing factories, oil mills, wheat mills, car maintenance workshops, and video parlors. As he gazed out into the road, Utador shivered and put on his jacket. The workers from the bean factory across the road had started to lay out a tarpaulin to spread out the beans. On the roof of the building, he noticed a row of pigeons sitting expectantly at the tarpaulin, waiting for their supper. Suddenly, his reverie was interrupted by the appearance of his younger brother, Uong To, smiling broadly and asking him how he was. Oh, well enough. Where's young Mong Tansin? He's coming along later. He went off to buy a quid of betel. Uong To took a look around the house. Wu Ta Da inclined his head towards the brass beetle box and said, There's plenty in there. Then he resumed his gazing at the road. When he heard two honks of a car horn, his heart skipped a beat and he turned his head to look, but the car sped on past without stopping in front of the house. Every time he heard a car horn, his stomach gave a lurch and he would turn to look and check his watch. Mong Tantzin arrived, his quid of battle making his cheek bulge. Uncle, what curry is Auntie Thwin cooking for us today, he asked, his words rendered virtually unintelligible by the beetle quid. I'm sure you're going to give us something delicious today, aren't you? Utada tried to smile. Of course, we're, we're planning to, he said. Conversation stopped. No one uttered a word. The two older men just stared glumly into space while young Mon Tantzin silently studied the house. The photographs were still on the walls, the bed, the furniture, all was where they had always been. The room was as silent as a morgue, the most recent arrival having been infected by the miserable thoughts of the two older men. He stopped chewing his beetle quid and didn't even get up to spit out the juice. A car pulled up in front of the house, the latest model in bright red, the sound of the engine scarcely running could be heard. Utah Dawjaws sagged, and he murmured, I think this must be them. 
The other two turned to look. The driver of the car glanced up at Utah Daw, and another face appeared next to his. From the moment the car pulled up at the doorstep, Utah Daw felt like a patient who had just been told that his cancer was confirmed. Kon Yeong climbed out of the car first, while the other man raised the windows and gently closed the door on his side, quite unlike the slam Kon Yeong had given on his side. Uncle, uncle, I'm so sorry we're a little late, Ko Yeong was calling. Utadwa said nothing, forcing a smile. In fact, they had arrived on the dot. It's my fault we're late, I'm afraid. I had some business to finish concerning a building in the Chanai Tazan quarter. Kon Yeong's voice echoed around the silent room, and his booming tones seemed at odds with the surroundings. The stranger had brought in, a hold, brought in a holdall made of a rough, scaly fabric, the kind that some termed a snakeskin bag. The Chinese businessman placed the bag on the bench, and Yi Ong carried out the in- introductions. Uncle, auntie, this is Kom Chin. As Utu Tawda was wondering what to do next, the newcomer stretched out his hand towards him. Caught off guard by the unexpected gesture, Utah Daw rose hastily from his armchair and grasped the proffered hand. When he touched it, he noticed how cold and clammy the palm was, as soft and supple as a girl's. The younger brother broke in. Sit down, please. Sit down in this chair here. Yes, sit down. Do sit down, Komyo Chin, urged Utah Daw. The room again fell silent. Each smiled at the other, although they had not a thing to smile about. It's all wrong that we should be silent like this, thought Utah Daw, and he blurted out, Komyo Chin, are you from this, these parts? Were you born in Mandalay? No sooner had he asked the question than he realized he had made a mistake. He felt embarrassed at the thought of him appearing unduly nosy. He says he hasn't been in this city long, uncle, interrupted Kon Yong. After a while, Utadaw's wife went out to the kitchen again. The newcomer simply smiled. From the moment this businessman had stepped through the doorway, they had all been sizing him up. Quite young, in the prime of his life, maybe about 40 or so. On his wrist he wore a gold watch, which was set off well by his yellow-toned skin. On his left ring finger was a bright green ring. He was smartly dressed and Utah Daw guessed that his clothes must be quite expensive. Bundles of banknotes were plainly visible, protruding from the snakeskin bag, and Utah Daw was thinking that once he took the money, his, the house and land would no longer be his. Thank you. Rose Styron is the author of several volumes of poetry, including Thieves' Afternoon and From Summer to Summer. Her articles, essays, and translations have appeared in publications such as the New York Review of Books, The Nation, and the Paris Review. Ms. Styron serves as the chair 
of the Amnesty USA National Advisory Council and the co-chair of the Penn Freedom to Write Committee. She is a judge for the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Awards and serves on the executive boards of America's Watch and Helsinki Watch. She lives in Connecticut with her husband, William Styron, Rose Styron. This is the time of year when all the judging of human rights awards um, seem to occur. So uh, Burma is on everybody's mind, especially mine. I'm going to read uh, three poems by the poet Tin Mo, who is currently in prison in Burma. Tin Mo was born in the village of Kanmye, Tangtha Township, in the Minjin district of central Burma in 1933. He attended Mandalay and Rangoon universities and obtained a BA in 1959. His book of poems, The Glass Lantern, won a prize from the Burmese Literature Institute. His book, Mani and Her Little Umbrella, won a prize in 1970 for the best children's book. He's published books of poetry, children's poems, and educational books. During the time of the BSPP, he worked as a government servant in the University Department of Translation and Publishing, was a member of the Committee for School Textbooks, and was generally considered to be in favor of the government's socialist policies. He has been recently widowed and has four daughters and a son. His youngest daughter is also a writer. After 1988, he became a member of the National League for Democracy and published a number of poems about the democracy movement, including The Years We Did Not See the Dawn, which I'm going to read. Uh, another is Please Speak Quietly, My Son. Another is Damage to the Pages of History. And Grandfather Will Resist with His Walking Stick. So you can see where his thinking is at the moment. In late 1991, he was appointed editor-in-chief to revive a flagging literary magazine, but was arrested uh, almost immediately after editing only one issue. His arrest coincided with demonstrations by students at Rangoon University, perhaps because they were distributing copies of some of his poems. After being held without charge for six months, it is believed that he received a four-year sentence for allegedly contravening the 1962 Printers and Publishing Law. Two of the poems that I'll read were written in 1998, 1988, sorry, <laughs> um, shortly after the military assumption of power which brought an abrupt end to the mass movement for democracy and caused many students and young people to flee to the Thai-Burma border area to avoid arrest. So many of these young uh, candidates for human rights uh, awards are the student leaders who are still 
uh, with hundreds of their colleagues on both sides of the uh, Thai-Burmese border, unable to find uh, a home in either one. There was some thought last year uh, as the Cambodian refugees were um, vacating their camps and being sent back to Cambodia that perhaps the Burmese students on the border would be able to move in and find some kind of shelter, but that has not been the case. Um, these camps have all been dismantled uh, by the townspeople at the behest of the Thais, so um, the students are still there. These uh, poems appear to have been first recited by the author at a memorable meeting held by the National uh, Democracy Group um, on the 9th of December, 1988, which is annual Writers' Day. Every year since the end of the Second World War, on this day in December, special lectures and dramatic presentations have been arranged to mark the beginning of what has in fact become a month of exceptional activity by writers, poets, critics, playwrights, film directors, cartoonists, and so forth. Throughout the month, um, they would travel the length and breadth of the country giving talks to late into the night to large appreciative audiences, usually all sitting out in the open air, under the stars, in the fine weather of a cool, dry season. These lectures, which were often called mass literary rallies, were for writers the only occasions on which they could communicate directly with their reading public without being subject to censorship. But after September 1988, they were stopped, one of the casualties of the curfew imposed by the military. However, the NLD did manage to obtain permission to hold one such lecture indoors for its members only on December the 9th. The chair on this occasion was taken by U Win Tin. I'll talk more about Win Tin later. The keynote lecture on poetry as a source of inspiration to the nation was given by the poet Tin Mo. Maung Tho Ka also spoke. These three uh, poems that I'm uh, going to read were recited there. Win Tin and Tin Mo are still in prison, and Maung Thokha died in prison in 1991. I'm going to read first a poem that Tin Mo wrote 25 years ago. You can see where he was and where he's come, and what his concerns were then. This is 1963, and it's called Picking Crickets. After a shower in the evil hour of night, by the mud puddles under the street light, leaping, flying, short, black, and squirming on the road, bug eyes staring, whiskers bristling, a swarm of crickets. Chirping, whirring, their shrill chorus splits the ears. A boy in a short red longi, a lantern in his hand, picks the little crickets by the glimmering light with his wide bug eyes and protruding top knot, he looks just like a cricket. Across the road, from verge to verge and back again, he runs, whooping, 
Thrusting crickets into the bag, he clutches to his chest. Back at home, his mother, her rusted hair uncombed, a baby at her breast, tosses the squirming, noisy swarm into a pot of boiling water before they're fried. In the morning, the boy will go to primary school. His mother will sell fried crickets at the gate. When his teacher leads them in the five precepts, the boy will chant them heartily. Thou shalt not take the life of any living creature, be it as small as an ant. Cheerfully, the boy will yell this precept. When his mother hears the boy shouting his lessons, she will be pleased, although she cannot understand what he is saying. In the evening, after school, after dinner, her son will once again return to the roads and lanes for picking crickets. Um, 25 years later, um, here's a poem about a poet grown older. Uh, there's a note from our translator saying that the blue water hyacinth uh, personified as Ma Beta in a famous long poem has come to represent Burma. During the course of 1988, Aung San Suu Kyi was also referred to by some as Ma Beta. That blue hyacinth occurs. Um, in one of the latter verses, this poem is in nine separate stanzas, each numbered. One. Half asleep, half awake, a time of dreaming dreams. I wanted to walk, but did not know which road to take. Half unknowing, my days are running out, my paunch thickens and my neck folds sags as I grow older, a time of getting nowhere. I have passed through all this time unheeding, as in a train one passes stations by. Two. Along the shore, gathering up fallen blossoms, drinking water from the spring, this joy I had. But having is not for a, but having is but for a moment and not having is for a lifetime. So from the countryside I came, gazing in wonder, to the town. But these days of ours are no longer auspicious, our horoscopes poor. Always bluffing our way through, we have entered the jungle of old age, twisting, crooked are the dark trails, littered with harsh thorns, overwhelming those who pass with misfortune and suffering. Life's dream is a mere flash, not for us the eternal life of the gods. Three. As a young man, I met with Lenin. But growing older, I would like to meet Lincoln. On the brink of the chasm, the terrifying shadow loomed and darkness fell on you and darkness fell on me. Some grabbed each other by the hair and some slipped and fell. Some fell helpless on their backs. Others were cruel and without pity. Right and wrong no longer mattered. Sweet became bitter. As we played the tune of the times with its false doctrines, the rhythm of life could not be heard. The beauty of life was marred and harmony decomposed. Four. 
the way we live now, submitting reports loaded with lies, recording, yes, sir, certainly, sir, onto tapes filled with misinformation, our smart party jackets now all creased and musty. We are treated like tea flasks, put here, sent there, at our boss's bidding. Robots, our lives without joy, we merely nod our heads. At this time, we are not poetry. We are not human. This is not life. This is just so much waste paper. Five. We do not worship learning. We worship power. We do not put our faith in skill. We put our faith in the gun. We have embraced the four corruptions that should be shunned. Greed, hatred, ignorance, and fear. And we have shed our shame and hung it up out of sight. And so the yellow patchock flowers have bloomed joylessly, time and again. And many nights have there been when the listless moon shone with pale and feeble light. We have bartered away our lives for falsehood. And now we have reached old age at death's very door. I wonder if these times should be put on record as the years we didn't see the dawn. The third poem, also written in 1988 at the same momentous time, um, is a more direct and ironic in the light of what has befallen um, Tinmo since. It's called Open the Door. A huge mass of people is on the move. Come to demand, open the door. Flags aloft, they follow their leader. With one voice, they shout their rallying cry. Their wishes written on banners held high. Elated spirits, chest bearing proud badges, red headscarves, red neckscarves, red scarves tied around their wrists. Our history has never seen the like. Heads erect and our hands clasped together, comrades all, we march peacefully to the pagoda, to the monasteries, our faces wreathed in smiles, our hearts serene. Amongst us, the people of Burma, there is no hate. We wonder in amazement at the change in ourselves as we shout to the sky with one roar of thunder, setting light even to the verdant forest. We have shaken ourselves free of our midnights. Open the door, open the door, the demand of the entire nation. Or to protest in as public a manner as we can the censorship of writing and the imprisonment of writers in Burma. Stories about what we're doing tonight will be broadcast into Burma itself. And we are confident that the message of our solidarity will at least reach the ears of those who most need it. But we also hope that it will reach the ears of the powers that be in Slork. And if it does, we urge Slork to hear what we are saying, to release all those writers who are still imprisoned and to allow the written word to flourish in Burma once more, unfettered, uncensored, and free.
Our next reader is the poet Karen Swenson. Uh, Ms. Swenson was first published by the New York Times and the Beloit Poetry Journal. Since then, she has been published in many places, the Paris Review, the American Poetry Journal, for instance. Doubleday published her first book, An Attic of Ideal, in 1981. She has made a special study of the Far East and of Burma in particular. Her articles have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the New Leader. Her latest collection of poems, The Landlady in Bangkok, won the National Poetry Series. I'm very honored to be here, um, and I am, uh, I am that tourist. I'm, I'm the outsider looking in. I'm going to read three poems. Uh, the first one is um, about uh, a historical Burmese figure, uh, King Narathu. Um, but when I wrote this, um, I was also thinking of... Um, Another leader of Burma, uh, King Naratu uh, built a uh, very large temple in Pagan, and uh, I was thinking of the new uh, temple that Nguyen has built near uh, the Shwedagan. Cold Blood. After murdering his father and marrying all the widows, King Narathu feared reincarnation. Perhaps he'd return as a lizard to be stoned by the villagers, skinned and roasted, a sputtering drizzle of juice in the fire. To evade fate, he built the largest temple in Pagan, on the plain already a hummocked quilt of mud-brick bribes against mortal deeds. Mornings, he trailed his courtiers behind him like a child with a clacking pull toy through the dusty bristle of palms to insert a needle between yesterday's bricks. If he could, the mason lost a finger. Eight hundred years ago, eight assassins stabbed him and then each other, but still bricks and mortar, death's dust steeped and kneaded, stack neat sandwiches. In his dim arches where bats swoop, we shake our heads over his litany of iniquity, loving it, wanting evil to be monstrous, mythical, something our ordinariness cannot achieve. When he looked down his tunnel-sealed masonry to the framed opening of light and green, perhaps he longed to be without the dark within, emerging from his shadows where bats scream at the edge of hearing, we watch a lizard warm his blood in the dust, circled by boys, pouches of catapults pulled taut on limber fingers. Uh, this poem is, is about um, the colonial past. The garden again. The Romans, retreating from wilderness, from the wilderness of Britain, 
four centuries after Christ, left mosaic faces laced gray with lichens, left their stones dressed and ordered as soldiers in the rain. In downtown Rangoon, a leftover edifice of empire sprouts trees from its Victorian brick, while a mile away crowds swirl colors skirting the gilded pinnacles of the Shwedagon pagoda. In the countryside, the woven bamboo houses pour dust-brown children from window and door, surrounding a church's brick fortress where swifts skim through windows stained by sunset. At the end of sovereignty, just as the sea gardens a wreck with coral and anemones, the emptiness of empire is filled, becomes a compost of leaves and wings. And the last poem is for uh, Dao Aung San Suu Kyi, and it's called and for, and for All Others in Such Circumstances. It's called Hatching. On University Avenue in Rangoon, each day she dines on solitude. Made mute by generals, her voice is amplified by silence. A bird eats its cell to crack its walls with wings. The following uh, short story is by the writer Nunu Yi. Um, I think it's actually also particularly appropriate that I was reading it today because the last time I was in Burma, just last month, my mother was for the first time reading Nunu Yi's writings. And uh, I can tell you that she thought that they offered a very accurate and um, piercing sort of depiction of life in Burma um, under the Slork and uh, the Burma Socialist Program Party. Uh, This is the introduction by the translator. The world over, there are ill-fed children who use their wits to obtain money for food, as in the following story. The young boy, Shrimp, seems content with his life, tough though it is. He works hard for his extra pennies, relishes the chance of a good meal, and plays happily in the mud on the riverbank with his friends. The point of the story, however written as recently as May 1992, is not to make us aware of his poverty, but instead of the fate of his father, which is merely hinted at in one or two short sentences. The Burmese reader will understand that the boy's father had been forcibly press-ganged by the army into serving as a military porter at the front. The town of Pa'an, the capital of Karen State, lies in Lower Burma on the Salween River, about 30 miles north of Maulmain. The surrounding area has been finely combed by the army for men, for men to serve as porters, and as a result, many families in Karen and Mon states send their sons to Rangoon to avoid the draft. 
In the story, the busloads of travelers from Rangoon are probably on a pilgrimage to the Tham Yin Ya mountain, where there is to this day a monk who is held in great respect because of his exceptional piety. During the dry season, as many as 5,000 people per day may visit him, coming from all parts of Burma. The author Nunu Yi was born in 1957 in Upper Burma, in Ava, one of the former capitals of Burma. From the time of the publication of her first short story, One Little Lonji, in 1984, she has shown a special talent for conveying the feelings and attitudes of young people growing up in poverty. Those bigger kids are real bullies. They act like the whole landing stage is theirs, like they can call all the shots. They think they have some kind of right to wash all the cars that come across on the ferry from the other side of the river, as well as the cars from Rangoon. It just isn't fair. If I had it my way, I'd put an end to those three bullies, So San Tu, Nang Wu, and Hlang Ji. I'd beat them up, drag them by the hair, and shove them under the water, just like in the videos. Then we'd see if they'd still push and shove, grabbing the cars the other boys had gotten to before them. I'd love to do it. I really would. Sure, the three of them are older than me, and they all act tough, but they don't scare me. I took them all on at one go and beat them so bad they were rolling in the dust, but I got paid for it. They really gave it to me afterward. Luckily, the bus drivers came and pulled us apart, but since then, I haven't dared pick another fight, even though I hate their guts. The other kids feel the same. They're just too chicken to take them on. Go ahead, clean those stupid buses, I mutter to myself as I squeeze the wet rag in my hand and throw it down, glancing sideways at them. Look at them, with their buckets and cloths, going all out at three Hilux line cars, impatient to get to the next lot of cars first. The cars they do never look clean and shiny. Their job isn't even worth the five chats they get. The drivers only give them the money because they don't give their cars a second look. They just shut the bus door and drive off again. The ferry today is taking real long over there, on that other bank. I'm expecting my friend's bus to be on board. My friend, get it? Because I'm the only one who cleans his bus for him. He's mine. I buy him his quid of beetle and his cheroots, and he gives me ten chuts for doing it, and some beetle too. Let's hope my friend's on this, fa on this ferry, because then I can be home free. I'll have ten chuts for him, plus the five I already have from cleaning the other car today, which means I'll have enough for my morning meal. The best is the curry at Dornan Singh's Zwegabin restaurant. It's great. Pork, fish, beef, all for 15 chats. I can have whatever I like, and for 20 I could stuff myself full. Now a bus from Rangoon has pulled up. I'll run for it. The three big guys haven't finished their other job yet and I'm sure I can easily beat the other kids to it. Can I clean your bus, sir? Do you want it washed? I yell as a small yellow minibus pulls up in a cloud of dust. I'm the first to catch hold of the door on the driver's side, but, but just as I'm asking, another boy pushes his way up to the bus door, and I have to elbow him out of the way. Can I clean your car, sir? He shouts. I'll make it really shine. Look you, I said, it's I said it first, it's mine, I said. Your name's not on it, is it? Who said it was yours? Who cares less? I got here first. I give him a great shove, and he falls headlong in the dust. <laughs>
Hey, hey, boys, scolds the driver. What the hell is all this? Get out of my way. I can't even open the door. Sir, sir, please let me clean your car. Please, sir. No way. Stop it. I don't want it cleaned. And don't come shouting around me again. Hell, why is this ferry taking so long? The driver slams the bus door shut and walks off. Bang goes my chance of earning another five chats. I sidle toward some of the passengers who are getting off the rear of the bus. There's only a handful of them. It looks like a special charter bus. Next to the bus, an old fellow is brushing the dust off himself, and he grabs his scarf without realizing. I pick it up, squeeze, quietly squeeze it up in my hand, along with the car cleaning cloth, and quickly move away. Beautiful, isn't it? Just look. The Salween River and the Zwegabing Hill behind. Oh, yes. Is Zwegabing Hill that real pretty one over there? That's it, yes. As soon as I hear them, I realize the travelers are new to these parts. I casually walk over towards them and stand near a young woman wearing a neat pair of sunglasses. She shifts her gaze from the opposite riverbank and looks down at me. This is Mangale on this side of the river, isn't it? Yes, and Pa'an on that side, I reply. And does, and does the big car ferry take very long to get across? Yes, it sure does. If you want to cross quickly, you should leave the bus and get on a motorboat over there. I'll go get one if you like. No, wait a moment. Don't go. We're not sure what our father wants to do yet. Another flop. Seems there's no way I can earn a few chats today. My next meal is going to be a problem, I can tell. All I can do is sit here and wait for the ferry to come across. Please, please, let my friend's bus be on it. What's your name, boy? Shrimp, I say. Shrimp? What kind of a name is that, shrimp? How old are you? Nine. Where do you live? Do you work at this jetty? Yes, I live over there in one of the huts by the side of the railway line. I live with my uncle. Well, I used to live with my uncle, but not right now. Most times I hang out here at the jetty. What about your parents? My mom's dead, and my father went away to work. At least that's what they all said. He's never come back. Oh, you poor boy. Don't you have any brothers and sisters? No, I'm an only child. Really? By now I can tell the sunglass lady is feeling sorry for me. Things are looking up. Hey, shrimp, what are you doing? Hell, now I'm in real trouble. That's my big sister coming down to wash at the landing stage. She runs up to me, shoulders bare, wearing auntie's big longi tucked around her chest. The sunglass lady turns to look. Go away, I shout. Leave me alone. Don't come and wash around here. That's my cousin, I add to the sunglass lady. I hope my sister can't hear what I'm saying, because if she does, she'll never understand, and she'll say I'm talking nonsense. And then it'll come out that we're brother and sister, and I'll be in a real mess. And what if it comes out that our mom's down in Rangoon, that she's, gone, that she's gone with one of my kid brothers to stay with our relatives? The only thing I haven't lied about is my father. And if the sunglass lady finds out that I'm a liar, she won't feel sorry for me anymore. So where do you sleep at night, shrimp? In among the stores, or I go and sleep on board the ferry. Have you ever been to school? No, never, but I know how to write my name. I know the alphabet. 
The watchman on the ferry taught me. That's good. Yeah, take this, shrimp. Go get yourself something to eat. I've made it. She's giving me a whole ten chats. Now I can go and get some food. Boy, I'm famished. When I finish eating, I run over to the motorboat jetty. The ferry still hasn't pulled in. Here, auntie, give me your bag. I'll carry it for you, I say. Sir, are you going across, sir? There are heaps of us shouting noisily as we skip around the motorboat jetty. As soon as usual, Sosan Tu and his gang are trying to beat us to, to the motorboats. I spot the lady with the sunglasses and her friends. They're getting to a motorboat, just like I told them. Here, miss, your bag. Give me your bag. I'll carry it for you. Why? Yes, yes. Thank you, shrimp. I hold the prow of the motorboat steady until all of the passengers have boarded. Once the boat is full and the engine starts up, I jump into the bow of the boat. The young woman asks me if I'm going all the way across with them. Shaking my head, I stretch out my hand toward the owner of the motorboat, who slips me a one-chat note. Scrunching the note up in my hand, I jump into the water, and the people in the boat scream as they get splashed with water. I'm used to them screaming like that. I swim back to the riverbank, where there are people playing about and bathing. I climb out at the spot where kids are sliding, sliding down the steep, muddy bank straight into the water. It's a thrill to shoot down the mud, slide into the river. Once I'm down in the water, I just feel like staying there. And one time I went down so fast that, the, that my thigh got gashed by a stake. Shrimp, shrimp. That's my sister again, just when I'm having such a good time sliding down. What is it? What do you want? Quick, quick, come over here. I have no idea what it is, but she looks awful, almost as if, she, almost as if she's seen a spook. I decide to go with her, even though I was just getting into the sliding game. What is it? Tell me. Over there, at the side of the restaurant, shrimp, people were, people were all looking at something, so I went to look, and someone, someone was lying there, a grown-up. I know, he was there last night, I saw him, so what? Oh, so you saw him. You didn't know. That's our father. My sister's face puckers, and I can see tears gathering in her eyes. What? I'm shocked. Surely it couldn't be. No, it's not, I say. You must be dreaming. But they say it is. Come on, come with me. I'll show you. She pulls me along behind her. At the side of the restaurant where we usually eat, a man is lying under a lean-to where he's been since last night. We push through the crowd and stand there. Look at him carefully. They say it's our father. I look. The man's hair is very long. His cheeks are, his cheeks are deep hollows, and his stomach is sticking out. His knees are swollen up, and his legs are spindly. No way. That man isn't my father. I've often noticed that grown-ups like him come and lie near here, and this one's no different. Daddy, Daddy, please answer. Maybe he's dying. Oh, shrimp, talk to him. It's Daddy. No, I don't want to. Why are you calling him Daddy when he's not our father? I turn and run away from my sister, who's in floods of tears by now. That man is not my father. It can't be. Over there, the ferry's finally docked, and I can see that my friend's bus is on it. Now I'm sure of an evening meal. At night, I am lying, tossing and turning on the deck of the ferry, looking up at the stars as the ferryboat watchman comes on board. 
I hear the sound of his sandals, see the flash of his torch. Hey, shrimp, are you asleep yet? No, not yet. He sits down beside me, puffing on his cheroot, till it glows bright red. You know the man who was lying under the lean-to by the restaurant last night? Well, he died. He's dead? Yes. Well, what difference does it make? What does it matter if he's dead? I can hear the sound of waves lapping, coming from the darkness of the river. When I was little, I used to come to swim at this riverbank with Daddy. He used to wrap his arms around me, tight. But what does any of it have to do with me now? What is there to cry about? It wasn't my father. I know that man wasn't my father. Thank you. Living in a cage reveals extraordinary facts. One is that a human being can actually drop off to sleep and even dream while sitting up in the midst of her own wastes, with urine in one corner, vomit and shit in another. Not that the gorge doesn't rise at first, not that the civilized being doesn't protest. You shout and hammer on the door, your bladder, bowels and lungs at bursting point, long after it's clear that you can end up in a model jail with access to zithers, xylophones, and weightlifting facilities, but not to a latrine. Yet, even when it becomes unbearable and eye-stinging cramps shooting through the gut, you let go. You still hold on to some little show of neatness. You urinate in one corner, defecate in another, over the dried-out puke. Neatness has its place in a cement cage, too cramped for an adult being to lie down with legs outstretched. For a while, you even try controlling your intake, hoping thus to limit the messier bodily functions. You take the smallest of sips from the morning tea. You limit yourself to a spoonful or two of the day's gruel. But within a week, you find yourself salivating at the sound of the jailer's keys. And by the second week, when he announces, meet day, you're mentally clapping your hands in delight. No sooner does the door slam shut as he leaves than you start sucking on the one piece of chicken leg, not the upper, meatier part, which they wouldn't ever waste on criminals, but the scrawny piece above the claw, the piece with its thin tendon and its pale, scaly skin. Hairs included. When every bit of flesh has been picked clean, you worry at the little smear of marrow in the bone, as if it were the very marrow of life. All the while, you're less than two feet away from the stinking lava of shit in one corner and the stinking piss pool in the next. When at last they let you out for your first visit to the public latrine, outing the, the jailer shouts, to announce this surprise excursion, you reach that hallowed ground only to find it spattered and caked with excrement. 
Is this too part of the punishment? Have they sent an advanced goon squad to spray shit all over the place just on your account? There you squat, straining to no avail, realizing that the privileges you so shrilly insisted upon, latrine privileges, for example, are not all they're cracked up to be. All you long for then is to return to the cell, to the familiarity of your very own refuse and squalor. Oh God, help me, I cried out in my cell, always feeling not better afterward, but worse, much worse. Senseless and spineless, I thought. Senseless because I knew better than to expect God to be within hearing distance. Spineless because some bone of resolve broke with that plea, causing me to cry uncle and beg mercy of a power, a resource I had so brazenly denounced. Then I reasoned with myself that to call out to God was just an expression, a reflex. If there were a frog in that cell, another breathing presence, I'd be calling out, wouldn't I? Oh, frog, help me. But there was no one else there, no other being, not a frog in sight. And that was why, the only reason why, I called out to God. It calmed me a little to think that giving voice to misery wasn't just an involuntary expression of pain like the grinding of teeth. There was actually a purpose to it, that shouting out. After a while, I felt myself heard, really listened to and heard by someone. That someone, of course, was just me. But in the depths of abandonment, I heard myself. I reached myself. And oddly, this comforted me. One morning, a jailer with cancerous feet came in, and I knew by the way he stood over me that he was trying to prepare me for something. Sister, I I don't hate you, he said, while I stared at the tops of his blistered feet. That's why... I'll tell you something now. It might help. I'm not saying it will spare you, but it could shed a little drop of comfort. They're coming for you. It's your turn today. Be brave. Try to, how can I say this, when you can't bear it any longer, when you've sunk so low that you think you're eye level with hell, remember what you are. Not a beast, not a bug but a human being. I'm a human being, I thought, after I'd been led to the room where I watched them take off my hair. They insisted that I watch. Not enough to take their rusty shirts to me, they made me watch as well. They had a mirror holder, someone just to hold up a mirror for me to see how they hacked and chopped away as though clearing a path through bush. A woman would never cut another woman's hair that way, I thought, so brutally, so mercilessly. But I was the only woman present. For your own good, little sister, one of the barbers whispered, we're shaving you so you won't worry about getting hurt. We don't hurt nuns. Good Buddhists never hurt nuns, see? It's only hair, I said to the mirror as they took the razor to my hair. With my hair gone, I felt surprisingly weightless and worthless. So that when I was stripped, it wasn't as bad somehow. 
a naked body was not much more shameful than a shaved head. But shorn and stripped and weightless, I felt unbalanced without a keel and found myself swaying as I got up as ordered to enter the next room. This will be the last reading of the evening. Uh, the author of the poem I'm about to read will have to remain anonymous. But the poem was written in honor of Muang Thoka, who also known as Uba Tha, uh, a well-known Burmese writer. A 67-year-old former naval officer and noted, noted satirist, he was sentenced to 20 years imprisonment with hard labor by the Slort government after he participated in the brutally crushed 1988 pro-democracy movement. Active in the work of the National League for Democracy and president of the unofficial writers' union, Muang Thoka was also a translator of Shakespeare. His most famous work, 401, is a true account of a shipwreck in which he was involved in the 1950s. Tonight, we dedicate the reading of this poem to his memory. Quite unfair and cruel to boot. I have never heard that a whole abdomen had to be opened up just to cure a mild case of diarrhea. I have never heard that an entire pile of books was burnt just because a single termite blighted one. I have never heard that a spoiled child was stabbed just to scold him for crying for sweets. I have never heard that death sentences have been handed down to minor violators of the highway code. But I have heard that the odious sentence of a lifetime's transportation has been given for one small offense of rightly being angry for just one day. <laughs> 